Well, as we open the Word of God tonight together, let's just bow for a word of prayer before we do. Father, thank you for this time once again that we can be together and we can open your divine Word and we can hear from you. What a special privilege that is for us that you would condescend to speak to us. It's amazing as that is. And so, Lord, as we open your word tonight, may we hear it in that way. Help us understand. Give us special grace upon us to, to apply what we hear that our lives would be changed and your name would be honored and glorified above all things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, as we come to our time tonight, I'll ask you to turn in your Bibles with me to John chapter 17. John chapter 17. And we find ourselves in our study of the Gospel of John just now hours from the brutal death of Jesus Christ. This is why he came to earth, so that he might save those who are lost. And of course, we understand that to be, when we say lost, we understand that to be spiritual lostness. In fact, that has been the message of the Gospel of John all through our study, and we know that John's purpose in all that he has written is so that all who hear what he says might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing they might have spiritual life in his name. We also know that the world hates Jesus Christ. They do not desire to have a relationship with Christ. They believe they are already worthy to be saved by God, if there even is a God in their mind. In fact, the world believes that since it is good inherently, then God is actually obligated to save them. Because in their own minds, they have lived a quote-unquote right life, a morally good life in comparison to others, that God is actually obligated then to save them. And if God, if that isn't the God that the Bible teaches, then we don't want that God. And so according to many, they are worthy to be saved in and of themselves. But it is obvious by way of our own experience in life and also even more importantly by way of the truth of the gospel that no one is saved without Jesus Christ. And so as we learned in chapters 13 through 16, as Jesus was leaving final instructions for a saved people, Jesus had told them words of comfort for those whom he knew would be here after he was gone. He reminded them of what true service and love was to look like among them. In John chapter 13, as he serves them by washing their feet. What it was to look like in the life of all those who are true believers. And we learned much from that for our own lives as to our service to one another as Jesus was teaching his disciples. 
And then he comforted them with truth concerning the coming of the Holy Spirit in John chapter 14. In fact, he said, you believe in God, believe also in me. In other words, just saying to them, listen, if God is divine, don't think I'm not divine. I am God. Believe in me because I'm going to come back for you and it is to your advantage that I go. I will lead you. I will send the Holy Spirit and he will lead you into the truth. And by his leading and through your word to the world, the world would be convicted about sin. They would be convicted about righteousness and they would be convicted about the judgment that is to come. He reminded them also that without him they could do nothing. That in order for them to carry out life in his name, they must abide in him. They must remain in the vine. He taught them that they would be treated in this world the same way that he was treated. And that in that difficulty, they would need to continue to walk by faith in the midst of that very trouble. So, when we arrive at the beginning of chapter 17, it's a very interesting text. Because Jesus has just said to them at the end of chapter 16, Behold, an hour is coming and has already come for you to be scattered, each to his own home, and to leave me alone. And yet I'm not alone because the Father is with me. Then he says, these things I have spoken to you that you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation. But take courage. I have overcome the world. And so we arrive at the beginning of chapter 17 and we begin to smile once again because there's nothing better than to know that Jesus Christ prays for us. Jesus Christ is praying for these disciples, and not only them, but for you and I. So what is here is not just for those who were with him that night. It is for us as well. In fact, John 20 even says that. I do not ask in behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word. That's you and I. We have believed because of the perpetuation of the gospel that began with the disciples who went out through all the earth. So this is for us. And so as we begin tonight, I want us to just let that thought sink into our heart. God, the creator of all things, the incarnate God, the word, is praying for you. Think about that. God is praying for you. And with that in mind, just just listen to this chapter. I want to read the whole chapter. It is a consistent thought. It is it is Jesus praying. And I and I while we're gonna take it in chunks over the next several weeks, I want to read the whole thing for us to have it just let our let our soul hear it. These things Jesus spoke, that is the things in chapter 13 through 15, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, so that the Son may glorify you, even as you gave him authority over all mankind, that to whom 
to, uh, to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. And now, glorify you me together with yourself. Glorify me together with yourself, Father, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. For I manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words which you gave me I have given to them, and they received them and truly understood that I came forth from you, and they believed that you did send me. I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours, and all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. For I am no more in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world, and I come to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me. And I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy made full in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you did send me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask in behalf of these alone but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, that the world may believe that you did send me. And the glory which you have given me I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity, that the world may know that you did send me and did love them even as you did love me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am, in order that they may behold my glory which you have given me, for you did love me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known and these have known that you did send me, and I have made your name known to them and will make it known that the love wherewith you did love me may be in them and I in them. This is a wonderful 
part of the Scripture for us to study. In fact, as I was reading it, I was thinking of Moses. It's somewhat like Moses being at the burning bush when we read this text. It's, it's as if we are on holy ground. Here is God incarnate praying to God the Father. Martin Luther, the late reformer, said this of this passage, quote, This is truly beyond measure a warm and hearty prayer. He opens the depths of his heart, both in reference to us and to his Father, and he pours them all out. It sounds so honest, so simple. It is so deep, so rich, so wide, no one can fathom it. It's true. There is much that we could study in this passage in all kinds of directions. And yet, as I look at it, I can see four petitions that, the, that Jesus is making in his prayer here. Four particular petitions throughout this entire prayer. One is that the work would be finished. One is the work would be finished in verses 1 to 5. Two is that our faith would be guarded that our faith would be guarded in verses 6 through 16. Three is that Jesus prays for our holiness to be accomplished, our, our sanctification to be actually accomplished in verses 17 through 23. And then the fourth is for our transfer to glory itself. That too would be accomplished in the final verses, verses 22 to 26. And so here we find Jesus praying for himself and for us. So that even though in the world we have tribulation, as he says in verse 33, our joy might be made full in him. So I want us to just begin tonight to look at these petitions that God the Son makes to God the Father um, as we kind of approach this holy ground, if you will. And I just want to look at this first one, the work to be finished. Jesus' prayer for God the Father to finish the work or have the work finished in verses 1 through 5. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you even as you gave him authority over all mankind that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now glorify me together with yourself, Father, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Father, Finish the work. Father, glorify your Son. Glorify your Son. What is Jesus asking? We could probably come up with a whole host of answers in our own minds and thinking about what he's asking, and some of them might even come close to being accurate, but I wonder if we understand why he's asking this. Because in order for us to understand what Jesus is asking here, we need to understand what glory means. 
what glory means. And of all the words in the Bible, glory is often confused as to its meaning, partly because of its connotations in different places in the Bible. It has such a broad scope of meaning. The first thing that we can notice about Jesus' request for glory is that what he is asking for is something that he had before his incarnation. Right? Verse 5, Now glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Glorify me back to what was even before creation ever was creation. In other words, this isn't something that is new for Christ. He is asking for a return to a certain glory. That's the first thing that we notice. This isn't something from which Christ is unfamiliar with. Secondly, we notice that this glory is God's glory, right? In other words, it was a glory that he had with the Father, and therefore it's God's glory. Right? Glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. This is a God-divine glory. So, it's not new to Christ, and it's a divine glory that he's asking for. Something that he had before. If you have friends who say Jesus isn't God, take them to this passage. You say, then why in the world would he ever ask for something that he had prior to this time? And then third, there is some way while Christ was on earth in which he did not possess an aspect of this glory that he is now asking to be returned to. There is some sense in which Christ in his incarnation did not have the very glory that he is asking. Because if he had had it completely while he was here on earth, there was no reason for him to be asking for it to be returned. And yet, and yet, there is a sense, there is a sense also that while Jesus was on earth, there is a sense in which he did possess glory. Because he says this in his prayer that he revealed this glory to others by finishing the work that the Father had given him to do, right? Notice verses 2 through 4. Even as you gave him authority over all mankind, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. And this is eternal life. He defines it to know God and Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on the earth. How? Having accomplished the very work which you gave me to do. And so we see here right at the outset, just in an observatory kind of way, that this is not a new glory to Christ. It is a divine glory that he had before, and yet it's different than the earthly glory that he had while he was here. In fact, we saw this last aspect of his glory, this earthly kind of glory on display while he was here. John even told us that back in John chapter 2 and verse 11. When Jesus was in Cana of Galilee and he turned the water into wine. His first miracle. In verse 11 it says, This beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory. His glory was being seen 
through the miracle that he did and his disciples believed in him, it says. So how can Jesus possess God's glory and yet at the same time not possess God's glory so that now he's asking for it to be restored to him? I think the answer to that question and the apparent conflict that it seems to have is in the meaning of glory. Particularly the meaning of glory from the original languages that we have. And so I first want to just think about the Greek language, even though it's the newer of the two languages, to think through. The Greek language is what we have the New Testament in. The word glory in the Greek language is the root word doxa. That's the root word for glory. You may even hear it in an English word, doxology. That's the noun form, doxa, glory. And that comes from an ancient verb, dakeo, dakeo. That's the ancient verb. Now, what is important about that is that dakeo, what dakeo means. Because in those times, in the ancient times, it carried the idea of to have an opinion of something, to have an opinion in, in a general kind of way, just to have an opinion about something. In other words, it was the kind of idiom like, it seems good to me. That would be doxeo. That would be the idea, to have an opinion about something. It seems good to me. So when you come across the Greek phrase, uh, dokei moi, that, that word just means it seems good to me. Moi being me, dokei, or dokei being it seems good. That phrase is used various places in the New Testament. In fact, turn over for a moment to Galatians chapter 2, because I just want to show you this, because this is important for our look into what Jesus is saying here. To have an opinion, to have a an opinion about something, you know, it seems good to me. That phrase is used here in Galatians 2, not in those English terms, but in the underlying Greek. And it says here, then after an interval of 14 years, in verse 1, when I, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along also, this is Paul speaking, and it was because of the revelation that I went up, and I submitted to them the gospel which I preached among the Gentiles, but I did so in private, now get this, to those who were of reputation. That's the word. To those whom it seemed good to me to do to. They were of good reputation. It was They had a good opinion about themselves. Not them themselves, but the people. It was those of good reputation. You see it again in verse 6. For from those who were of high reputation, they uh, what they uh, were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Well, those who were of reputation, that's the same the term, again, down in verse 9, and recognizing the grace that had been given to me, James, Cephas, and John, who were reputed to be pillars. That's the same thing. They were of a good opinion. They had a good opinion in the minds, in a general sense, in the minds and hearts of the people. So that's the, the verb kind of idea. The noun had similarly the same idea of opinion or what someone thinks. And so in English, we have words like that. We have words like orthodox, orthodox, 
which simply means to have a right opinion. Or heterodox, which means to have a different opinion. Or paradox, which means to have a contradictory opinion. Now, over time, as language does, things lose and things gain meaning. We know that. Every year, even in our own country, there's words added to our dictionary that some of us scratch our head and say, that's not even a word. Why is that in there? And so over time, doxa wasn't just opinion or what someone thought in a general kind of way, but rather it came to mean what something, uh, something that merited an honorable opinion. Not just an opinion in general, but now an honorable opinion. And that was the idea, especially when it was speaking of kings or someone of divinity like God. So even when you read Old Testament passages of which the Greek language was influenced from, that's why we have the Septuagint, which is a translation of the Old Testament in Greek. When you read in the Old Testament, you can even see attributes being attached to the glory of, of the being that is being ascribed to. You can see attributes being attached to that because of the influence that the Old Testament had on the New. For example, Psalm 24. Who is the king of glory? It says. Who is the king of glory? Here's what it says. The Lord, here's attributes, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. He is the king of glory. You see, there's there's an opinion, but the opinion is attached now with some honorable attributes attached to the one that's attributing, that's having the glory attributed to them. So when we think of glory, we can understand it to mean, in one sense, of an intrinsic worth of God, which is made up of his character. The intrinsic worth of God made up of his character, much like even in the Old Testament when God said to Moses, you cannot look at me and live. I will hide you in the cleft of the rock and I'll let my, my attributes pass by, my backside pass by, and then he reads his attributes through his goodness and, and these attributes of God. Intrinsic worth. So when Jesus prayed in John chapter 17 and verse 4, I glorified you on the earth having accomplished the work that you had given me to do, he is saying, I revealed to those who were with me and everyone who saw me and heard me, I revealed your essential character and worth through my obedience that those who were with me saw. They saw your character on display as I obeyed you. Your intrinsic worth, your intrinsic value, your very character. Therefore, if you see Jesus, you see who? That's only one side of it. That's only one side of this idea, if we can even say it that way, of glory, particularly God's glory, the glory of which Christ is praying for. Right? That surely was the side of glory which Christ did have on the earth because he says that, I glorified you. So Christ had that glory on earth, the glory to to shine forth and reveal through his obedience the the, the very character and worth of God the Father. 
But there was a glory he did not have. And I don't say that to devalue in any kind of way the divinity of Jesus Christ because he's asking for a glory that he does not have. The glory that he had with the Father before the world was is what he did not have. And for that, we need to look further at the Hebrew language. Because in Jewish thought, any outward display of God's presence was believed to always involve some display of light. In other words, any time they thought of God or the presence of God, there was always this essence of which there was a blazing light accompanied with it. So so bright, in fact, that no one could approach it and you would even be consumed by it if you looked upon it. For example, Psalm 104, verses 1 and 2. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a cloak. That's the idea of the glory of God. And we are reminded that, just like Moses when he came down from the mountain and the glory of God, the presence of God was even on him so that his face was shining so much that the people wanted his face veiled so that it wouldn't frighten them as it was. The radiance of God's glory was on him. And so it came to be that even in the Jewish Targums and their commentaries, they called this glory Shekinah glory. You won't find the word Shekinah in the scriptures. You find it in the Hebrew commentaries and Targums. So with that as our backdrop, that idea of glory, this intrinsic worth, and, uh, and character of God being revealed and this blazing idea of the blazing glory of God as our backdrop, I think we get a better idea of what it is that Jesus is asking in this first petition. Before his incarnation, Jesus Christ possessed both parts of that glory. He, he had the worth and character of God just as he has in essence all the time from eternity past and he had the blazing glory of God before the incarnation. He was fully God intrinsically and expressed in attributes. He was fully God in the fullness of the visible display of God in light. In fact, even on the mountain, some of you might be thinking of the transfiguration on the mountain when Peter and John and James were there, and, and Jesus peels back, if you will, his, his flesh, and, and the glory of God shines forth, it, that that might be the Shekinah glory. Well, that couldn't be the Shekinah glory, because otherwise Peter would have been consumed, and Peter looks at it and sees Moses and Elijah with him, and he says, is it good for us to be here, Jesus? Shouldn't I, maybe I should build some tabernacles for you all. And the cloud descends, and Peter falls on his face, frightened. God says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And they're shaken on the ground. That is the Shekinah. Throughout the incarnation, the Bible tells us that he set aside the independent use of the full display of his glory. That's really the essence of what Philippians chapter 2 says when he took on man. He 
set aside the independent use of that full display of his glory even though he retained every aspect of the intrinsic worth and character of God. In fact, he displayed that throughout his earthly life. Now, here we are at the end of his earthly ministry on the very precipice of the greatest display of intrinsic worth, his crucifixion and resurrection. And he prays that he might enter again into that visible glory that he once had. This is why verse 5 says what it says, Now glorify me together with yourself, Father, with the glory that I had with you before the world was. And what strikes me most of all in all of that is that right in the middle of that request is the reality of our salvation. Our salvation was there so that the intrinsic worth of the Father would be proclaimed by the Son as He saves those whom the Father has given Him. Even as you gave Him authority over all mankind, so that, here's why Christ has authority over all mankind, so that to all whom the Father has given to Him, He may give eternal life. And what is eternal life? That they may know God, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom God sent. Jesus says, I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you gave me to do. Jesus came to save. Right smack dab in the middle of the request for return to glory is the accomplishment of that glory being seen in manifested reality on earth through our salvation. I don't think we often think of our salvation in that way. God chose you and gave you to the Son. And He gave the Son over you so that the Son might reveal to you the intrinsic value of the Father by means of the message of the intrinsic value of the Son so that when the Son gave you eternal life, your life would be to the glory of the Father you are brought into a relationship with the Father through the Son. So think about it. You are not saved because you're such a great person. You're not saved because you were even a good person. You were saved because God the Father desired to honor the Son and the Son desired to honor the Father. And our salvation accomplishes both. The reality is Jesus has been given that glory. And here we are some 2,000 years after the very reality of the death of Jesus Christ. Jesus has been given this very glory that he's praying for. He has already been exalted to the right hand of the Father in the glories of heaven. Stephen in Acts chapter 7 saw it. 
When Stephen was being stoned and Paul is standing there holding the coats of those who are throwing the rocks, Stephen looks into the glories of heaven and the heavens are opened and he sees Jesus Christ in his glory. The Apostle John on the island of Patmos wrote about it. We have it. It's called the revelation of Jesus Christ. Paul was taken to the third heaven, he says, and he even potentially saw his glory. We don't have it written because he can't even speak of it. That ought to encourage us as believers. Why? Because it all points to his rule now and forever. Jesus is on the throne. What a comfort that would have been to these disciples who had just heard him say in verse 33, in the world you're going to have tribulation. But take courage, guys. I've overcome the world. What an encouragement that ought to be to us. Because we will share in Christ's ultimate glory. And like I said, there is one sense in which we share in it now. We are saved. And that glorified the Father and it glorifies the Son. And because Christ lives in us, we glorify Christ. And when, therefore, we obey and walk by faith, we show the character of Christ in us. In fact, Jesus says here in verse 10, All things are mine. And they are all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. Well, we were the fathers. The Father gave us to the Son. The Son has given us back to the Father and saved us, as the Father has sent the Son in order to do, and therefore we have glorified the Father. He has glorified, He has been glorified in us. Verse 22. Glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one. Our unity in Jesus Christ is a glory to the Father, as it is a glory to the Son, and as it is a glory to the Father. So there is a sense in which we already have His glory. But even more than that, there is coming a day when each one of us will truly, who truly believe upon Jesus Christ, will see Christ visibly, we will see his outward glory. Verse 24, he says, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me will be with me where I am. Why? In order that they may behold my glory. Jesus prays that we will see the glory that he had with the Father before the world was. So if we will one day see His glory and we have been given a part of that glory now, then let us live to show His glory in our lives. Right? And so notice then, when Jesus prays His glorification, prays for this glorification so that He might glorify the Father, notice that He gives reasons for His request. He gives reasons for his request. Number one, he says, it's time. It's time. Verse one, Father, the hour has come. First reason I'm praying for this glory to be returned to me, which I had before the world was, is because the hour has come. In other words, 
the redemptive plan has come to the place where nothing else needs to be preached, nothing else needs to be done. The only thing needed now is the death of the eternal sacrifice. That's what Jesus is saying. I have accomplished it all. The will of the Father has been perfectly accomplished. Now carry out this final scene Glorify yourself in me. The hour has come. It's time. That's reason number one. Reason number two, he says, I ask for my glory because my glorification will glorify you. The hour has come. Glorify your son so that, verse 1, the son may glorify you. The reason I ask for my glory is because ultimately it is for your glory. Jesus isn't praying some kind of selfish prayer here. He's not praying for something to be used on himself for his own selfish desires. The prayer and the subsequent glory is not inherently so that Jesus might get something. The mind and the heart of Christ is the glory of the Father. The glory that he will receive is a means to that end. Father, give me what is necessary and what I had before in order that my fullness can fully glorify you forever. Now, Jesus is our example. His life is to be our life if, like Paul said to the believers in Ephesus and Colossians or Colossae be imitators of God be like Christ Christ through Peter said be holy for I am holy how do we pray Father give me what is necessary for me in order that my life would ultimately simply be just a glory to you whatever that is what Jesus is praying for So first, the hour has come. That's the reason I'm asking for this. Your redemptive plan is being accomplished, and it is accomplished. Secondly, I want that glory because that glory is a means to the reality of fully glorifying you in the end. And then he gives a third reason why he asked for this glory, because it's part of the salvation plan. It's part of the salvation plan. Notice verse 2 and 3. Even as you gave him authority over all mankind that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. This is part of the salvation plan, the glory of God. The reason God saves anybody is for his glory. In other words, had salvation not been accomplished, had Jesus Christ and his humanity and his incarnation failed at any kind of point, At any place along the line, there would be no glory and there would be no salvation for us. But because our salvation is and was fully accomplished through the perfect obedience and sacrifice of Jesus Christ, then Christ can rightly ask the Father to return him to the glory that he had before the world was. Therefore, our salvation is absolute. 
Why? Because Jesus has been glorified. So Jesus says, the hour has come. I want to glorify you, secondly. And thirdly, it's part of the salvation plan. And then he gives a fourth reason for his request. He says, because the work on earth is done. Verse 4, I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. In other words, the divine pattern for self-denial and obedience and suffering has been set. Let me say that again. The divine pattern for self-denial and obedience and suffering has been set, which is the path to which glory follows. So this is God's glory. This is Christ's glory. And in a sense, it is our glory as well because we glory in Christ's death rather than in our own efforts. Right? We glory in the death of Christ. That's what we place our faith on. Christ died for our sins. That's how we have eternal life. We place our faith in Him, the one whom we do not see. First, believe it. Believe it, right? John says, I wrote this that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ. Believe it. If Christ's atoning work is finished, and if his atoning work has been accepted by the Father forever, and Christ is glorified with the Father again, which He is because God accepted the Son, and the answer to this prayer has been fulfilled, then it's other foolishness. In fact, it's absolute insanity and ingratitude to not believe. We need to believe it. Genuinely. Genuinely, we need to believe it. And we need not think that we can add to it. We need not think that in some way what we do religiously or otherwise is going to add to what Christ has accomplished for the glory of God. Nothing we do will add to it. Nothing we do uh, is going to remove us from it because we are secured by Christ. So the first thing we need to do with this is believe it. And then the second thing we need to do with this is proclaim it. Proclaim it. If Jesus Christ satisfied the wrath of God through his sacrifice, and if God the Father is fully satisfied with Christ, then let's tell others about it. We certainly won't tell others about something we're not part of, something we don't believe, but if we believe, then let's tell others about it. Because the spiritually dead are in every place that we are, aren't they? 
Every place. Most places? Well, maybe not my workplace. My secretary's safe. We have spiritually dead people in our own home. They're in our workplaces. They're in our our families. They're our friends. They're even in this church. Shocker. Ethically nice people who are still believing in themselves, settled in their own pride, but they do not believe upon Jesus Christ alone. They need the gospel. They need this truth. And who's going to tell them if it's not us? In fact, how can we not tell them? Because if in Christ we have found what we have so desperately needed, then how can we not tell them about that? Listen, folks. There's nothing better than knowing that Jesus Christ has complete power. Nothing better. The work is finished. Now what we need to do is to tell others about it. Father, glorify the Son. And He did. He did. And we are saved because of it. Nothing better than that. So let's believe it. And let's proclaim it. We'll get more next time. Let's pray. Father, once again, we thank you for our time in your word. What a rich, rich text this is for us to just take a glimpse at what you have accomplished and how you accomplished it and how you enveloped us in that. Now the Son has glorified you, and you have glorified the Son, and the Son in saving us has glorified you, and you in giving us to the Son has glorified the Son, and all of it has enriched our life by means of our own salvation in which we can now glorify you ourselves. Father, help us do that. Help us do that. Help us believe this. And most of all, help us proclaim it that others might know Jesus Christ as well, that they might come to know the truth, and that through that truth they would be set free. Thank you for tonight and for these sweet souls. Help us this week to be faithful to you through Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.